This is an AMI podcast. Describe your culinary style in two words. Punk rock. Mary Mammoliti is cooking things up. I really do love to cook. It's a way of taking care of people. Contrary to Seinfeld, soup can be a meal. Now I'm losing the vision in my left eye, and making pizzas has become a real challenge, but I still love it. I noticed that with cooking, whenever there's food involved, whether we have sight or not, if you have that passion for it, it all turns out the same. Kitchen Confession, new episodes every second Wednesday. Download this AMI podcast wherever you listen. I'm Juvita Gupta. And this is The Pulse. The pandemic has led to a sharp increase in mental health challenges. Concerns range from feelings of isolation and loneliness to grief and loss. For many of us, we've had our routines disrupted, stayed cooped up at home, and are unable to interact with friends and family. Many mental health supports and services are either unavailable or stretch thin. According to a study published by the Council for Canadians with Disabilities, the disability community self-reported a heightened level of stress and feelings of isolation during the pandemic. But there are supports available to address mental health concerns. It's a question of reaching out and asking for help when things seem to be getting tough. Today, we discuss disability and mental health. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. Happy New Year. Happy 2021. I hope that everyone had a chance to relax and unwind a little bit. I know it's been an unusual holiday season. We didn't really get to do a lot of the things that we normally do. We didn't really maybe get to visit with family as much as we might have wanted to. But nevertheless, I hope that you have taken some time to rest recharge and relax. And we're coming back with a number of exciting projects here on The Pulse. I will try to talk a little bit more about that at the end of today's program if I have a chance. But we really want to spend a few episodes over the next four to six weeks talking about health and wellness during the pandemic and various facets of that. And one of the big components of overall health and well-being is mental health. And I wanted to sit down with someone who could give us a bit of a perspective on how the disability community is faring during the pandemic and what have some of the challenges been and how do people with disabilities cope? What are some of the strategies that we as people with with disabilities might employ uh, when we deal with the COVID-19 pandemic? There's a lot of things that are going on right now. So I thought it'd be really good to sit down and talk to somebody. And with that in mind, I have had a chance to get caught up today with registered social worker, Lisa Derenchenevich, who also happens to run a number of programs in collaboration with Balance for Blind Adults. Balance for Blind Adults is a Toronto-based not-for-profit that works with uh, people who are blind or partially sighted. And Lisa's been doing some work with them to try and support some of their clients who are dealing with some mental health challenges and concerns during the pandemic. Lisa, welcome to The Pulse. I know you are, are a regular on other programs. I think it's your first time being on this show. Welcome. It's good to have you. Thank you. Yes, it's my first time being here on The Pulse. 
Well, I hope you'll come back uh, and, and talk to us again. But for now, you know, I mentioned off the top of the program, the Council for Canadians with Disabilities report that they brought out in the spring. And that, that was relatively early in the pandemic. And even at that stage, uh, the report noted that people with disabilities that they had talked to were experiencing heightened stress and isolation and feeling cut off. In your mm-hmm. practice as a social worker, what have you heard? I definitely would agree with their findings. I think in terms of living with a disability, people tend to feel isolated just in general and can feel excluded from the general society even before the pandemic. And that's what I was hearing from a lot of people is that they're saying, you know, I feel isolated and excluded from society before, and now I feel even more isolated and excluded. And also that whatever services or supports that they had in place that were, you know, major coping strategies, those were all taken away by the pandemic. And that void of support and services has, I think, a bigger impact on people with disabilities than it does on the general public in some ways. Mm. We'll cycle back to a number of these things, but one of the Mm -hmm. topics I wanted to investigate with you is the impact of gender, because I just read an article about how men might experience heightened levels of uh, mental health concerns, depression, anxiety, but they're less willing to talk about it because of these stereotypes Mm -hmm. about men not, you know, boys don't cry and Mm -hmm. what have you. Do you find that within the disability community, it's worthwhile to think about gender? Maybe uh, men with disabilities are struggling more, but are less willing to reach out for help? I mean, definitely it's always good to consider gender and other social political identities in how we're understanding mental health and disability. Um, Definitely, I would agree that there is a stigma related to men not wanting to reach out and being, you know, maybe somewhat shamed for reaching out for help. Um, But I think in the disability community, sometimes this can be a little bit different. Uh, Sometimes I do find that men reach out a little bit more in the disability community than in the general community Uh, because there is just a general sense of needing to find and learn new things. So they're willing to reach out to learn how to use a computer. And within that conversation about having to learn how to use a computer, they might get that idea that, you know, maybe there's other things that would be helpful to get help from. Mm -hmm. That's such an interesting observation. And, you know, it's the first time I've actually given it some thought you know, a few minutes ago, you mentioned about the gaps in services, and those gaps, mm-hmm. I suspect, have widened to chasms during the pandemic. But just take us back to pre-COVID-19. Mm-hmm. What was the state of services that might have been geared towards people with disabilities in terms of dealing with their mental health? We know there's a lot out there, but to what mm-hmm. extent do those services embrace disability as a legitimate identity category? I think what people would end up finding is that they would be sent to general social service agencies where there wouldn't be a firm understanding of disability. And so then mm-hmm. a lot of times the, the person themselves would have to do a lot of education and explaining to their worker of what their experience was actually like. And uh, so that there wasn't that kind of firm understanding and basis that they could start with. And uh, so that could kind of add a little bit more 
to what they would need to do before they could start to receive, you know, more support and actually work on the issues that they were there for. Mm. Do you think it's helpful to have a therapists or counselors who self-identify as people with disabilities and bring that identity into their work with clients? Definitely. I, I definitely believe that. And I myself do actually self-identify as having a disability. I am visually impaired. And definitely this is something that I bring into my work when I um, am working with participants at Balance or other people with disabilities. Tell me about the work you do at Balance. What are you doing with them right now? So uh, right now I'm doing two main things. I am facilitating the Sharing Space Support Group. And this is a discussion-based group to talk about, you know, stresses and frustrations and challenges, but also about positives and successes and just the daily life of having blindness or partial sight and what that's like. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing I'm doing is I'm providing one-on-one counseling in a short-term basis to provide some help for people during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about some of the the issues that you outlined uh, that have emerged during the pandemic. Isolation mm-hmm. is a really big one. I would mm-hmm. imagine that just by its very nature, the sharing space support group would help to alleviate some of those feelings of being cut off and isolated. What have you found? What have participants told you? Definitely, yes. That is one of the goals of the group is to bring people together and build those connections and by its very nature to show that they're not alone and they're not the only person going through this experience. Mm -hmm. Is the sharing space support group open to uh, anybody or do you have to be a balanced client? Do you have to live in Toronto? Are there parameters or can anyone join? They will have to be a balanced client. Um, However, they can become a balanced client very easily by calling the balanced phone number and just going through a short intake process. Mm -hmm. Right now, they don't have to live in Toronto. Uh, That's actually one of the benefits of the pandemic is because we are doing the support group remotely. People can be from anywhere across Ontario. Mm -hmm. Or indeed Canada, for that matter, I would imagine. Uh, Right now, we're keeping it to Ontario just because... Mm. Of myself as a social worker, um, my parameter is to work within Ontario. Ah, that makes sense, yeah. Mm -hmm. So how does this work? Because uh, I would be very curious about whether virtual sessions are in any way more or less effective than Mm. in-person sessions. I mean, do you feel that you've gained something? It certainly allows you to spread the net wider. But Mm -hmm. Lisa, do you also feel that it helps to have deeper discussions or is something lost in translation? I feel that both can be effective. There is definitely a different feel to the virtual sessions versus the in-person sessions or group. Um, So some people like the virtual sessions better. Some people like the in-person sessions better. But both can be effective in their own way. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to ask you a little bit about the social determinants of health. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. as we talk about these factors like isolation or loneliness, and we'll sort of unpack a few more things as we go along, uh, there's a very serious problem of underemployment and unemployment Mm -hmm. within the disability community. A lot of people on social assistance, and you're making the dollar stretch and stretch. Are you Mm -hmm. finding, Lisa, that these barriers that predate the pandemic are playing a role in terms of people's mental health and well-being during the pandemic? 
oh, definitely, um, you know, prices on groceries have gone up. Uh, so it's harder to make that budget stretch the way it used to. Mm-hmm. And and then also we're having to buy masks and hand sanitizer and other products that we need for the pandemic to keep ourselves safe. And these are always things that have to stretch the budget even further when it's stretched as far as it can go sometimes. And so what happens in your sharing space support group? Do these concerns crop up at all? Do people talk about it when they're in the space together? Sometimes it, it can. It really depends on the people in the group, what topics we cover. So it's really focused on what that group of people are wanting to talk about. And if you don't live in Ontario and you wanted to set something up that was similar to the sharing space support group, is it really complicated or is it something that, uh, you know, someone could put together? Is it helpful to have a social worker or is it okay to just have um, someone, a friend or, um, you know, uh, someone who's well known within the community try and facilitate that space for conversation and networking? Mm -hmm. I mean, so there's different approaches that can be taken. Um, It can be good to have some professional support depending on what comes up in the groups. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people can feel very comfortable and they can share information that might be a little sensitive or a little hard for someone who's not trained to know how to deal with. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes that can even just be about having the right resources and information to steer them towards. You know, having a group, there's always the potential for conflict. And Mm -hmm. knowing how to deal with that can also be helpful. Um, You know, sometimes maybe it's about having that peers and professional combination. You know, maybe if you have a disability agency in your area who's willing to partner with someone uh, who's not as specifically trained, they could have a mentorship where the person is running the group but receiving some support from the person you know who is trained who is part of the disability agency that's very insightful i actually never thought about combining the two approaches having the professional as well as Mm -hmm. the peer support elements rolled in and of course i guess one of the benefits is also just being able to offer resources and telling people where else can you go if you need more specialized Mm -hmm. support or if you need more one-on-one support Lisa, you've been talking a lot about the sharing space support group, but that's just one facet of your work uh, with Balance, Mm -hmm. but also in terms of the general overall clinical work that you do. I am curious about whether you've had to deal with an uptick in things like suicide or extreme forms of depression during the pandemic, where people are really feeling like they are at the end of their rope. That is actually one thing that I haven't noticed in my work. Uh, Mm. I haven't experienced uh, an uptake in suicidality or extreme depression. Definitely there has been an increase in anxiety and depression and a sense of grief and loss, Um, but I haven't found it going to the the extreme of increases in suicide, at least in my work. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about uh, just how you you feel that people are dealing with things like anxiety and depression during the pandemic. I mean, they must be feeling a bit uncertain about what happens next. I mean, a lot of people that mm-hmm. I've spoken to are saying, you know, I'm worried about going to a hospital and not being seen yeah. too properly because of my disability. How mm-hmm. are we addressing these concerns? How do people deal with some of those anxieties? Yes. Well, we're basically living in a time of general and global uncertainty, 
so we can almost even think about it as a global sense of anxiety that we're living within. So definitely there is a sense of individual anxiety as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so sometimes it's even just about acknowledging what we can control and what we can't control. So, you know, in terms of your example of, of going to the hospital, you know, maybe it's about knowing which hospital you're going to and if you've gone there before and what the service has been like and knowing, you know, if you do need to do some advocacy beforehand or not. Um, some people, they even bring a sheet of paper that explains some of their disabilities and, and what they need and don't need. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, it's good to sort of think about how you can advocate for yourself as a patient. But don't you feel that there was also a, a need to think about the coping that people with disabilities do on a day-to-day basis? I know I, I was thinking about this in other contexts, you know, mm-hmm. being a natural problem solver as a person with mm-hmm. a disability. Mm-hmm. Are there lessons uh, in terms of dealing with mental health challenges that would apply to the broader population that could be derived from the experience of people with disabilities? Definitely, definitely, yes. I think you're right that we have to be natural problem solvers and that we also end up building that sense of resilience because of, you know, the barriers that are in place and the things that, you know, have to be thought through. And definitely Mm -hmm. some of these lessons of, you know, maybe not getting stuck just in the anxiety, but trying to push through to the problem-solving part, uh, that could be something that could be applied to many people. Mm. Let's inch a little bit towards talking about some of the strategies that you would encourage people to adopt during COVID-19 to try and keep some of the anxiety and depression and other issues at bay. Mm -hmm. What are you recommending people do? So I think the first thing is to sort of into your own self. There's lots of suggestions and ideas and brainstorming out there, but you have to know what works well for yourself. Uh, You know, one suggestion that has been gone around a lot is, you know, about building a routine. And Mm -hmm. this can definitely be very helpful, uh, but some people don't work well with a routine or they need a more flexible routine and other people need a more structured routine. So trying to kind of Tap into yourself and knowing what is working for you can be a good way to kind of mold these kind of general strategies and techniques into something that will be really worthwhile. Hmm. The other strategy that gets uh, that gets publicized a lot is trying to get exercise. And I think that's mm-hmm. easier said than done if you're a person with yes. a disability. You know, Definitely. going to a gym is a bit of a health hazard at the best of times. Uh, mm-hmm. So how does someone who is... Uh, physically disabled or as another impairment, how do they incorporate physical exercise into their routine? I would imagine that's something that you would want to advocate as a social worker. Yes, definitely. I definitely do. Um, So, you know, depending on what their abilities are around exercise, looking at, you know, what are the things that you can do? And it can be very simple as doing something, sitting in a chair or walking the hallway in your apartment building, um, you know, trying to find just like simple things to do that get the body moving. Mm. How about sleep? I know just for myself, if I don't get my, what is it, six hours of sleep at night or something, mm-hmm. I'm a bear the next morning, you know, <laughs> just don't talk to me. Uh, how does how does sleep and sleep hygiene uh, tally with mental health concerns? Mm-hmm. So, 
anxiety especially can have a real toll on our sleep hygiene. Sometimes when we're thinking about all the problems in the world or all our own individual problems, that can keep us up at night. And it's that thought of all those thoughts racing through your mind. So sometimes it's about trying to slow the mind down and sort of say, okay, I'm going to think about those thoughts tomorrow, but right now I'm mm-hmm. going to take some time to go to sleep. Uh, so some people, again, they go back to having that sleep routine, uh, you know, maybe having a nice warm cup of tea before bed. You know, there's some great herbal uh, sleep-related teas that you can get. Um mm-hmm. And just doing things that kind of tell your body that, you know, it's time to go to sleep now. How about technology? I mean, technology is a mixed bag. On the one hand, it helps mm-hmm. you stay connected and go to things like the sharing space support group. On the yeah. other hand, it could just show you how everybody else has really got their best pandemic life on mm-hmm. and you're the one who's mm-hmm. kind of struggling. So how do you make yeah. use of technology in a way that it doesn't, that it helps rather than hinders your mental health? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So sometimes if you are feeling like being on social media, especially is creating some anxiety in yourself, setting some limits about how long to stay on social media or what times of the day to stay on social media, you know, maybe in the afternoon or in the morning might be a better time than in the evening or just before you go to bed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How about the news? I mean, uh, I know people who say that they've just stopped watching slash yep. listening <laughs> to the news because it causes mm-hmm. so much anxiety. Yes. Um, I can't say that I would advocate not listening to the news <laughs> and staying out of the loop, but how do you sort of yeah. handle what you hear on the radio or see on TV? Mm-hmm. Yes, and the news can be sort of a double-edged sword in terms of giving information and keeping you in the loop, but then also creating that anxiety when you see these really kind of hard stories to listen to being repeated over and over again. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the repetition sometimes that can be the problem. So maybe, again, choosing how much of the news you're going to read or watch or listen to. And, you know, if they are starting to repeat the same stories again, maybe that's the time to sort of change the channel and do something else. Lisa, do you think it's helpful to think about this not as um, not in terms of coping and trying to survive a pandemic, but as building strategies for resilience in the long term? Like what Mm. kind of mindset do we need to have to be not only able to succeed and survive the pandemic, but to also Mm. survive and and thrive in the months and years that follow? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Uh, again, the problem-solving techniques and strategies that we've learned from the pandemic can be useful definitely way beyond the pandemic. I think everyone, you know, has heard that term pivot, and Mm -hmm. it's something that everyone has had to do to, you know, change their schedules or change their ways of being and doing things. And to have that problem-solving and not getting stuck in the frustration or the anxiety is something that can really serve people going forward. You know, one of the questions I should have asked you earlier on in our conversation, and I almost forgot, is just around the seasonal blues, the February blues. Mm -hmm. We know that for a lot of people, the shortened days and the lack of sunlight can be a huge factor. They've even given it a name, seasonal affective disorder. How do you think people should deal with that double whammy of the seasonal affective disorder and the pandemic and the Mm -hmm. isolation how do people make uh how do people make heads or tails of that 
Yes. So usually the advice for seasonal affective disorder is to get out and be in the sunshine and do things even in the winter. And so, I mean, we can do that to some degree, but we can't do it to the same degree that we would used to in the past. Uh, but even sometimes maybe just trying to make a point of going outside and standing outside in the fresh air for even a few minutes or being outside in the fresh air and just kind of breathing it in, even if it is a little bit cold. Mm-hmm. Do you think it is helpful to take things like, you know, a lot of people are told to take things like melatonin, which are which is over the counter, or to consider buying one of those uh, mood lamps you can get from a health mm-hmm. store. Uh, what say you, Lisa? Yay or nay? <laughs> In terms of melatonin, uh, that's not something that I feel comfortable giving an opinion on uh, because it's outside of mm-hmm. my knowledge as a social worker. I have worked with people who have used the lamps and some people find them very helpful. Some people don't. Um, So it would be up to the individual to decide if it's something that they wanted to invest in and give it a try. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As we wind up our conversation, I have gotten to know a lot about your work, but haven't really gotten to know you (laughs) as a person. Lisa, tell me about what got you interested in this line of work. What is it about social work that drew you in? Well, interestingly enough, when I was uh, younger as a kid, I wanted to be an author and write books and stories, Uh, but that (laughs) didn't really turn out to be a path that I followed into. Um, But I think what the connection between my love of reading and stories and my job in social work is that connection with people. You know, I like reading stories about people. And in my work, I have a lot of work and I hear all the different stories that people have to tell. And that's really interesting to me. And it's interesting to see also the diversity and the resilience that people have. And uh, all the times that I find, you know, someone's going through something really hard, but they have the strength within them. It's just about, you know, maybe teasing it out of them and finding a way to reconnect with that sense of strength and resilience. Mm. So that's a really good place. But as we as we head out, if there was someone who is listening right now and they're really struggling with their mental health, Mm -hmm. what would you tell them? I would tell them to reach out and try and find a mental health professional in their area. Um, I know in Toronto, we have 211 that you can call, and that's for information about social services. Um, There's also lots of great ways to find counselors and therapists in your area. And really just not being afraid to make that first phone call or send that first email. Lisa, thank you so much for being on the program. The time has flown by, and I know I've learned a lot from our conversation. Thanks for speaking to us today. Great. It's been fun. That was registered social worker Lisa Derenchenevich, who joined us to talk about some of the work that she's done with Balance for Blind Adults running the Sharing Space Support Group and discuss some of the challenges and, dare I say, opportunities and strategies for people with disabilities to better manage our mental health during the pandemic. We went over a lot in this half-an-hour conversation. If you missed any of it, you can find the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Also, do head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse, where I will try to assemble not only a few resources, but also have a couple of thoughts about some of the strategies that I've been using with uh, varying degrees of success to try and manage my mental health during the pandemic. 
I wanted to say that over the next few weeks, you might get fewer episodes of The Pulse. And this is because um, I would like to also take some time to work on an audio documentary that will air on this channel hopefully around family day to deal with the very contentious issue of medical assistance and dying. And so I would like to spend a little more time working on that, which is why you will get fewer episodes of the pulse. So just wanted to give you a heads up on that. I'd like to thank Lisa Derentinovich for being my guest on the program today. Ms. Reen Abdul-Majid is our technical producer. Andy Frank is the manager of AMI Audio. Paula Deneen is our technical supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening. Happy New Year, and I hope that you have a wonderful rest of your day. Stay safe. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.